Folks, good morning. And I add my welcome to that of Julie's, especially if you're visiting with us this morning. Uh, We're delighted to have you with us and trust that you'll find your time with us one of blessing as together uh, we get back into the book of Job and have a look and see what Job has to teach us this morning. Let's pray as we start. Father God, we recognize that over the past number of weeks, as we've looked together at the lessons that we can learn from the book of Job, we thank you for how you have opened our eyes and our minds to what is contained within this book. I ask that you will help us again this morning to learn the rich truths that come from you. Help us and prepare us for whenever we will face the difficulties in life. Whenever we will face suffering, whether it be personal suffering or the suffering in this world, Father, help us to know how we are to respond and how we are to act in these times. So be with us and help us in Jesus' name. Amen. A number of years ago, I found myself in a position on a Saturday morning having been curtailed into looking after three children between the ages of three and seven. And I thought this was going to be easy. For four hours, it was going to be fun, fun, fun. And as you can imagine, why wouldn't you think something like that? Because kids are fun. Well, that's what I thought because my only contact with these kids uh, prior to this was 30 minutes after church at most. And so I thought, well, sure, it's just 30 minutes replicated, 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 and it'll be fine. And it was fine for the first 20 minutes. And then I discovered that children get bored very easily. You have to understand, as a 21-year-old, I never realized these things. And certainly with children of a minister, I thought, you know, they should be easily entertained. But oh no, they wanted something different after 20 minutes. So that was fine. I thought, we'll move on to something else. And it turned out that I learned rather quickly that these children's idea of what fun was and my idea of fun were two very different things. So we had to reassess what we were going to do. And eventually I give in to what I would say I would never do, and that is put children in front of a television and hope for the best. And that's what happened. And so I thought my morning was fine. By the way, this was one hour, 45 minutes into the whole thing. But once the two-hour mark came, it turned out the television can be boring as well. And so there I was, sitting in my office, at my computer, working away on a few things that I had to do. And I could see three shadows coming towards me, looming around my chair, going, what are you doing? Why? 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 And so what happened in the next two hours was this conversation of one word from these children and an explanation by me, trying to answer the question, why? Why was I doing this? Why was I doing that? Why? 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 In that moment, I learned a lot about childcare, uh, some that I've learned uh, since as well. But other thing I learned was that we're inquisitive by nature. Even from a very early age, we are all inquisitive people. We all want to know more. We all have a hunger and a desire within us to find answers to our questions. And We're inquisitive in different ways because we're inquisitive about different things. We all have special interests, special things that tick our boxes that we want to find out more about, whereas others will go in a different direction to find out other things. 
And it doesn't matter what area of thinking or study it is, but we'll always come and ask the question, why? Why does internet work the way that it does? Why does a telephone work like it does? One that I learned a year and a half ago, why do the sun, the moon and stars so confuse me greatly? If you can remember that infamous children's address. Why? This is where we left Job. Two weeks ago when we were thinking about Job's faith and Job's search for faith, we firmly affirmed that Sunday morning that Job was right to ask the question, why? And that we can have the confidence to ask the question, why? But having dealt with that, we must go now to the next question that naturally leads on from where we left off. And that is, what is wisdom? To get the answer to the why question, what is wisdom and what is understanding? For the past two times that we've looked at Job, we've been looking at huge uh, portions of scripture, uh, 20 odd chapters in a go. This morning, uniquely, we're looking at one chapter only. Because the chapter that Judy read for us earlier is unique in the whole of the book. We would like to think that the book of Job is like a sandwich. It has the heavenly perspective in chapters 1 and 2, and then right at the very end it has the heavenly perspective again with the debates and the discussion right in the middle. And that's true, but right in the middle of the debate and of the discussion is chapter 28. I encourage you to have your Bible open, page 529, as we look at this passage to see what it has to teach us. It appears right in the middle of the book. It doesn't add anything to the section that has gone before. It doesn't offer anything for the section that is to come after it. What it appears to be is a space of thinking. It's almost as if Job, in the middle of this debate, has had enough. And he sits back, throws his arms, and just gives us this this little chapter of what he's really thinking and what he's really feeling. He's had enough of this exchange between his three so-called friends. So Job starts his reply uh, to this current section in chapter 26. Uh, And in chapter 25, we we discover what he's replying to. His friend Bildad challenges Job's self-righteousness. So Job so far has been this man who said, I have done nothing wrong. I know in my heart of hearts I have done nothing wrong. So why is this happening? And of course his friends were going, well, you must have done something wrong because God doesn't punish those who are righteous. But we even know from chapters 1 and 2 that God saw Job as a righteous and an upright man. So Job replies to this challenge about his self-righteousness and he says this, Dominion and awe belong to God. He establishes order in the heights of heaven. Can his forces be numbered? Upon whom does his light not rise? How then can a man be righteous before God? How can one born of woman be pure If even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes, how much less man who is but a maggot, a son of man who is only a worm. So this is Bildad's challenge to Job from chapter 25. And Job's response starting in chapter 26 can be summed up in two or three verses in chapter 27 where he says, As surely as God lives, who has denied me justice, 
the Almighty, who has made me taste bitterness of soul, as long as I have life within me, the breath of God in my nostrils, my lips will not speak wickedness, and my tongue will utter no deceit. I will never admit you are in the right. Till I die, I will not deny my integrity. So this sums up Job's response to what Bildad had challenged in his self-righteousness. Job's saying, until the moment I die, I will not give up my fight to say that I am righteous in the sight of God. I will not deny my integrity. And this is what his position remains. And so he breaks into chapter 28, that passage that Julie read for us. Can you picture him sitting back in his chair with that gaze, not looking at any of his friends, but looking at almost like an old man, looking out into the horizon, recalling a story or recalling something that he's learned from life. And in a way, that's what chapter 28 is. He tells this proverb, this idea of something that we can relate to, to really help understand what he's thinking. So chapter 28 can be divided into three sections, and we'll look at them in these three sections. And the first section is from verses 1 through to verse 11. And it gives us a little bit of an insight into what life was like in the ancient Near East. I don't know if you're able to have a look at this passage or have an image in your mind as it was being read for us. I will admit it took me a couple of times to really get to grips with the imagery that's going on here. But Job is giving us a picture of what was the most technologically advanced thing uh, in his time, and that is mining. To us, we recognize mining as an industry of, of age. It's an old thing. But in these days, it was something modern. Now, Israel or Palestine itself doesn't have much by way of great mineral resource. But still, man had discovered that they could dig down deep, and there they could find some things that are precious. So in this word picture, we can see two motifs interweaving, two things that Job is trying to teach us. On the one hand, there's an object of great value. And on the other hand, it is of great danger. It's of difficult search and cost to find what this precious thing is. So verse 1 says, There is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. I don't know if you've ever gone on one of those trips down into a mine. I've done a few of them into a slate mine and into a gold mine. And you go down and you go down. And just when you think you can't go down anymore, you can go down further. It's the moment I hate where you're, you're wearing your little light pack and they tell you to cover your light. And of course, you're left in pitch darkness. A mine is a deep, a very confined, a very cold But this is where humankind is discovered to go to find their most precious of things. And all these things, silver, gold, and precious things that the earth has to throw up, it's been placed there. And I think of that. If something has been placed, it's been set for a purpose. So Job is, is saying, yes, there's a mine. Mankind has discovered how to get into this mine. But they're only going to look for what has been placed there. And who is the one who has placed it? 
we'll discover a few verses down into this that it is the creator God who has placed these things into the mind that is talking about in verse 1. Verse 4 tells us, far from where people dwell, he cuts a shaft in places forgotten by the foot of man. Far from men, he dangles and he sways. Can you see the image of this very early mining community? Dangling and swaying whatever makeshift ropes they have going down into these shafts. But it's worth it because there's something precious. There's something deep. There's something worth finding. Job recognizes that in his suffering, there's suffering all around the world. We've seen this in other chapters and passages in Job. And here again, he recognizes that people are risking their lives to go and to find precious things. They're suffering injury. They're they're suffering hardship and difficulty to go and find what they hope will be something precious and something worth mining. Job is searching desperately just as these miners are searching in great loneliness to understand the answer to the question that we started with. Why? Verse 5 goes on to tell us something in deference to mining because, of course, they would have known agriculture. So verse 5 breaks in to give us this comparison. The earth from which food comes is transformed below as by fire. Agriculture compared to mining is seen as easy. They say, look at the agricultural landscape and think of the work that goes into that. Now transport it. And think of the harshest thing that can destroy creation, which is fire. And that's how below the earth is transformed. By these tunnels and shafts to go and to get these hidden treasures. It's hard and it's violent. This is no light or airy matter just a matter of casual interest. Here is a search characteristic of humankind alone. Verses 7 and 8, No bird of prey knows that hidden path. No falcon's eye has seen it. Proud beasts do not set foot on it, and no lion prowls there. The great beasts, those in the air and those in the land, don't know anything that goes on underneath. It's unique to humankind It's only humankind who knows what is contained underneath the surface. It is a search of matchless value, a search only embarked upon by those prepared for pain and loneliness, and therefore by those human beings who truly appreciate the matchless value of the object of their search. So what is the author trying to say here? What is Job trying to give us? Well, he's given us a parallel. A parallel between the natural domain with a greater and deeper search in the cosmic domain. So he's taking what is the most searched after thing on this earth and in the spiritual world gives us this parallel of what is searched for, what is precious. And he comes to name it as wisdom in verse 12. But it is wisdom that we're talking about. This is the parallel that he wants to put in the spiritual realm. We search so hard for these things that will make us rich, these things that will give us status, these things that will make us important in our communities. But yet, we will not take the same time, effort, and energy whenever we look for wisdom and search out for the things of God. 
And it's wisdom with a capital W. It's not just knowledge, wisdom with a small w, but this is wisdom. This is searching for what is integral in humankind. Ethics, morals. It's the wisdom of who we're made up to be. So it's wisdom with a capital W. To put it another way, Christopher Ashe, who wrote a commentary on this, says that in Old Testament, this wisdom means something like the architecture of the universe. And Proverbs 3 gives us an idea of this. Verse 19, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. And what this proverb is saying is that God created the universe according to the blueprint called wisdom. He designed it in wisdom. It's the fundamental underlying order according to which the universe is constructed. And what does this do? This gives us faith in everything around us. Because whenever we see the and know the architect, the one who by this blueprint of wisdom formed everything, we have faith that this place has a purpose and has a reason. Consider everything around you. Consider the world how majestic and marvelous it is. Think of the things that have gone before us and the things that we're looking at right now and possibly some things that we can see happening in the future. With this view, we can start to get an insight as to what the book of Job is really about. It's not about debates. It's not about arguments and it's not about philosophies. Nor is it about answering the suffering question. What it is about is humankind's search for wisdom. Ultimately, their search for an ordered world that has been made and is cared for by the Creator God. That's what these two motifs uh, intertwined in this first section of Job teach us. It's what the two parallels that Job is trying to bring us in this whole passage is about. It's about discovering the creator God who created order so that we could trust him for what has been, what is, and what is to come. We move on in Job to chapter 12 and the second part of the chapter to think about this wisdom and understanding which are synonymous. And it develops in two parallels, two themes, value and inaccessibility. You could almost look at it like this. This is a sandwich passage. Verses 12 to 14 tell us that wisdom cannot be found. Verses 15 to 19, wisdom is so valuable that it simply must be found. But then in 20 to 22 again, wisdom cannot be found. So let's start right in the middle where he says, it cannot be bought with the finest gold, nor can its price be weighed in silver. It cannot be bought with the gold of Ophir, with precious onyx and sapphires. Neither gold nor crystal can compare with it, nor can it be had for jewels of gold. Coral and jasper are not worthy of mention. The price of wisdom is beyond rubies. The topaz of Cush cannot compare with it. It cannot be bought with pure gold. Here we have Job taking one of the most precious things of his day. And he says, you know, if you amass all of this wealth, 
It is still not in the same value, nor can all of this wealth buy you wisdom. He wants us to be in no doubt of the priceless value of gaining a grasp of how this world fits together, how it works, what its foundational structures are, moral as well as material. And no one, no one so longs to grasp what this order is as the suffering believer does. Whenever we face suffering, whenever we're faced with it personally, and whenever we see it around the world, we are brought into this position of trying to understand the order of things. Trying to understand the God in whom we believe. Asking the why question. But what Job is trying to teach us in the middle of everything that he is going through, he is searching for wisdom. If we understand that wisdom lies at the root of the whole created order, underpinning it, setting it in place before the world was made, then the question why will be answered. But the rest of this passage tells us that it's not an easy find. Verse 13 clearly states that wisdom cannot be found in the land of the living. And in verse 14, when the deep and the sea are asked, they simply say that it is not in me or with me, respectively. In Old Testament understanding, the deep and the sea are the entrance points to Hades, to that lost eternity, to death. Verse 21 goes on to tell us that wisdom is hidden from the eye of every living thing. Down in verse 22, we are introduced to two characters, destruction and death. And what do they say? Only a rumor of it has reached our ears. Whenever asked this question, can you tell us about wisdom? They say, well, we've heard this rumor through someone who told it to someone else, but we really don't know how to get to it. We really don't know if it exists. These two characters introduced by Job are important for us. And so we're going to take a moment to think who they are. These two characters, destruction and death, they're seen as guardians of the most desperate extremities of the cosmos. Destruction, if you look at the bottom of the page in your Bible, in the little helps at the bottom, it will tell you that destruction is also known as Abaddon. It's been interpreted as the angel of the bottomless pit that place of death. Destruction. He is asked, where is wisdom? And death. He is asked, where is wisdom? They have to shrug their shoulders and say, we do not know. Whenever we understand the whole of biblical thinking, whenever we look at the Bible as the salvation history plan of God, we recognize that by default, by being born in sin and shapen in iniquity, these are the default position of humankind, of where they're heading, destruction and death. They have no answer. The default of a fallen humanity have no answers. They cannot answer because they do not know the truth that is brought by God. If we were to finish at this point, we would think this is all rather hopeless. This is all rather gloomy. 
rather than helping us understand anything about how we interact and cope with suffering in the world today, rather than helping us, you've added to it. But what is the author trying to do? I think the author's trying to give us pause for thought. He's saying, Job is saying, look at this. Compare and contrast. Think of it in human terms, first of all, with the mind. And now think of it in comparison and searching for wisdom. Christopher Ashe says this. We have been caught up in an awesome and terrible human tension. Job longs to know why. Is he right to long to understand? Yes, he is. For to understand this would be to understand the radical structure of the universe. And no greater goal can be possible for the human seeker. Oh yes, he is right to search. But is his search doomed to failure? Yes, it is. He must seek and yet he will never find wisdom. Ash is saying, we can search, and it is good to search for wisdom, because wisdom is part of, of God. It is good to search, but don't think we'll ever get it. Don't think we'll ever get it in its fullness, because we won't. Because we are told that his ways, that is God's ways, are higher than our ways, and his thoughts than our thoughts. We will never fully comprehend or understand the wisdom of God. But that doesn't mean we sit back and let life roll past us. We intently look for God. We intently search after His things and His ways so that we can understand the structure, the fiber of this created order. So far, in these first 22 verses, the author has told us how precious wisdom is. And he has told us that it's hard to find because no one knows where it can be found. In verse 24, he almost gives us an answer to our search for wisdom. And as he says, God, uh, God understands the way to it and he alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. It is God who has this eternal view. It's God who looks at the landscape of history. And he can see the beginning and he can see the end. And he can see everything in between. It is God who knows what is going on, not us. It is God who knows the location of wisdom, not us. We are not told where wisdom is is located. But what happens in this passage is that our eyes are directed to the one who knows the way to the place of wisdom. The narrator goes on to offer us another picture. This time, uh, well, it's there in front of you. When he established the forces of the wind and measured out the waters, verse 26, when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm. Then he looked at wisdom and appraised it. He confirmed it and he tested it. He goes to the weather. If anything, we would say that Job was an Ulster man because what else do you talk about but the weather when you can't think of anything else to say? 
But what he takes out of it is this. Think of the weather. We cannot control it. We have never been able to control it. But yet, in our view, it seems to do whatever it wants. The wind will blow, the rain will fall, the floods will rise. But he says that's not really how it works. He says from the heavenly eternal perspective, that is God's perspective, the one who knows where wisdom is, God gave the wind its weight. He told it when to blow hard and when soft. He apportioned the waters by measure. He told the flood and river waters and seas to go here but not there, to stop at this point. He made a decree for the rain, telling it when, where, and how much to fall. And he made a way for the lightning of the thunder, controlled every rumble of thunder and each lightning flash. And so the narrator tells us, when God ordered the weather systems of the cosmos, he also saw, declared, established, and searched out wisdom. This is what God has done. We can't understand why the weather works the way that it does. But it is ordered. It is controlled. We cannot and will not ever be able to control the weather. But it is controlled by the one who has the eternal view. That is God. You would imagine now that we have established the one who knows the way to wisdom. That he would take us by the hand and He would take us to that place so that we could get all our answers to our agonized questions. Not necessarily. We have listened to many voices in this passage. So let us now listen to the voice of God. This is the first time in verse 28 that we hear God speaking into this story. Since chapters 1 and 2, whenever we have that great courtroom scene at the start of the book. And God says to man, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. In a saying that is so critical to what this book is all about, God is directing us away from our agonized questions and towards himself. He does not take us by the hand and lead us to the answers. Rather, what he is saying He beckons us to bow before him as Lord, the one who knows the answers, but may choose not to tell us. Our eyes are directed away from the search for the architecture, and they're faced towards the person of the architect. So we can quickly ask from this, why doesn't God answer my question? To which he replies, turn your gaze and your inquiry away from the answer you want and towards the God you must seek. If you want to live in this world as a wise person, a man or woman of understanding, rather than a fool, do not seek wisdom for its own sake. For if you were to find it, you would become a puffed up know-all, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So do not seek wisdom, seek wisdom the Lord. And this is the humbling message of Job. When it comes to our contact with suffering, whether directly with ourselves or people around us or in the rest of the world, 
We want our why question answered because we are wired to be inquisitive. But in this chapter, we learn that answers are not what is valuable. Rather, it is knowing God. It is humbly resigning ourselves to the fact that we may not receive our answers and we resign to let God be God, the one who ordered creation, the one who controls the uncontrollable. And in knowing the Lord, we find rest for our souls. Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30 tell us, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When we resign ourselves to rest in Jesus, and whenever we resign ourselves to put aside our desire to know all the answers, we get so much more than just rest. Because these verses tell us that we gain an understanding of what this life is all about. We get to know Jesus and his ways. And we become satisfied to trust in Jesus rather than in our self-seeking questions that challenge God. We all want answers to the why questions of life. And we have noted before in this particular study of Job that there's nothing wrong with asking the questions. But from our time in Job this morning, we need to recognize that a greater answer to our questions will come in seeking God and not from a self-serving wisdom. And that is wisdom with a small w. Don't take it from me. Yes, take it from what God is saying, but let me offer another voice into this. I want to read from you a paragraph from the book Code Red by Andrew Drain. Andrew was a friend to many of us in this congregation. And for those who are visiting with us, Andrew suffered from uh, lymphoblastic leukemia. In the midst of this suffering that he went through, he was able to write the following reflections on Job 28. And he says this. When suffering comes to our door, we spend and waste so much time asking, why Lord, why me? What in the world is going on? So many endless questions, so many of which will remain unanswered, at least in this lifetime. But in the assurance that wisdom dwells with God alone is where we must take refuge. Science and technology, for all their benefits, won't tell you a thing about suffering. They might give you some tablets to help ease the pain, but the source of true wisdom can only be received if we listen to and submit before God, our Creator. Why? Because wisdom only comes from God. Human reason is unreliable when applied to the existence and nature of God. To help us in the moments when we will go through whatever we will suffer and go through, our answers will never be found. We can try, 
we must have an honest and open relationship with God. But it is in that relationship where we will find peace and rest for our souls as we discover the true source of wisdom. That is God, the one who controls the created order, the one who is not brutal to punish out of some self-pleasing way, but the one who looks across all of time and knows what is best for his people, knows what is best for his salvation plan. Folks, be encouraged this morning. Be encouraged that we don't have to do the work and the energy to try and figure out why. But rather we go to God. We allow him to be who he is. We allow him to be our comfort. And we allow him to be our friend. Let us pray. Father, we recognize this morning that we can never fully grasp who you are. We can never fully understand your characteristics. But thank you this morning for opening our eyes, even a very little, to who you are. Help us in the times of difficulty, the times of suffering, to look to you. To look to you as the source of our hope, the source of our encouragement the source of our moving forward, the source of our relationship so that we will know the pleasure and delight of being called your child. Father, help us in the difficult times. Help us when the tears won't stop. Help us when the suffering, pain is so agonizing. Help us to know you. To step above this view that we have in the human world. And to attempt to look at the eternal view. So that we can trust in you, the one who ordered creation. The one who controls it. The one who loves us. And cares for us more than we can ever imagine. We ask for your help and for your encouragement as we desire to grow closer to you. In Jesus' name.